listening to Vet Candy. Welcome to Unmasking the Opioid Crisis, a Veterinarian's Vital Role Unveiled, presented by Vet Candy and brought to you by Covetris. Join me, your host, Clay Palmer, on this educational podcast journey as we delve deep into the opioid crisis, tracing its roots from the 1980s to present day. Throughout this series, we'll explore the history of opioids and examine the consequences of decades of use in the U.S. To shed light on the current state of this crisis, we'll talk with leading experts, highlighting the crucial role veterinarians play in safeguarding the health of their patients, their communities, and even themselves. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. This show is brought to you by the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector. Are you tired of dealing with the hassle of IV dislodgements and line breakages during critical treatments? Well, we've got great news for you. Introducing the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector, the game-changing innovation that will revolutionize your clinic's workflow. As a busy veterinarian, I used to struggle with IV issues, wasting precious time and resources. But ever since I started using the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector, it's been a total game changer. With this device's anti-reconnect feature, I never have to worry about contamination after separation. Plus, the recess valves prevent bacterial contamination for up to two hours. Join veterinarians like Dr. Shannon in experiencing the ultimate time-saving hack in your clinic with the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector. Don't let IV issues slow you down. Upgrade your clinic today and see the difference the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector can make. Say goodbye to wasted time and hello to efficiency. Exclusively at Covetris. Between the years 1999 and 2017, almost 400,000 lives were claimed by overdoses linked to both prescription and illicit opioids. Tragically, the death toll continues to rise, as does the number of people who are dependent or addicted to opioids. Much-needed efforts are underway to educate physicians and dentists on their pivotal roles in addressing this nationwide crisis. But what about veterinarians? Dr. Richard Joseph is a board-certified veterinary neurologist and the CEO of Veterinary Telespecialty by VOCM. In dogs and cats, opioids exert their effects on the central nervous system by binding to a specific opioid receptor in the brain and spinal cord. This binding results in pain relief, sedation, and potential side effects like respiratory depression. Pain management is just as crucial when caring for animals. Animals, like humans, often require opioids for relief. Veterinarians and veterinary clinics, armed with registrations from the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, possess the authority to administer, prescribe, stock, and dispense these potent medications. Yet as awareness and monitoring surrounding opioid prescriptions by medical and dental professionals intensify, an unsettling trend has emerged. Some individuals may resort to covertly accessing opioids for personal use from their pets or other animals. Veterinary prescriptions can inadvertently lead to diversion, misuse, 
or accidental exposure within the households. The workplace, too, becomes a potent gateway for opioid misuse among veterinary staff, posing a grave risk of overdose and tragedy. A 2014 online survey of 189 Colorado veterinarians found that 12% were aware of veterinary staff opioid abuse and diversion. 13% of surveyed veterinarians were aware that an animal owner had intentionally made an animal ill, injured an animal, or made an animal seem ill or injured to obtain opioid medications. 44% were aware of opioid abuse or misuse by either a client or veterinary practice staff member. 62% believed that they had a role in preventing opioid abuse and misuse. 64% said that they had not completed continuing education on best practices for prescribing opioids since entering the practice. 73% indicated that their veterinary medical school training on opioid abuse or misuse was below acceptable, rating it either fair, poor, or absent. Today, we'll explore the legal risks associated with opioids in the field of veterinary care. Omar A. Lopez is the owner of the Lopez Firm. He focuses on civil rights, employment, and business law in New Jersey and New York. Let's talk about some recent criminal cases concerning veterinarians and opioids. U.S. v. Patrick Breeze, 2022. A former veterinarian who confessed to pilfering opioids was sentenced to an eight-month term in federal prison. Dr. Patrick Breeze, a 54-year-old resident of Madison Heights, Virginia, entered a guilty plea in January of 2022. He admitted to one count of tampering with a drug intended for sale after interstate shipment and one count of dispensing a controlled substance without a written prescription. Court documents reveal that Practic Breeze practiced as a veterinarian in Amherst County, Virginia, from 1994 to 2021. The animal hospital stocked Dilaudid, an opioid also known as hydromorphone, primarily for alleviating post-surgery pain in animal patients. In his role as the hospital's primary surgeon, Breeze had unrestricted access to the hospital's hydromorphone supply. He began diverting a portion of this highly addictive drug from the vials and self-administering it through injections. To conceal his actions, Grease replaced the stolen hydromorphone with a substitute substance, typically saline or butorphanol, and reintroduced the altered narcotic back into the hospital's inventory. This case was investigated by the Food and Drug Administration Office of Criminal Investigations, the Drug Enforcement Administration Diversion Control Division, and the Virginia State Police. Patrick Grease was suspended from the practice of veterinary medicine in 2022 and has not been restored as of the date of this podcast. U.S. versus Lindsay Oaklesh. In October 2022, a federal grand jury indicted a 37-year-old veterinarian hailing from Lafayette, Colorado, on five counts of deceitfully procuring a controlled substance from a distributor. The grand jury indictment alleges that Lindsay Oaklesh utilized her Drug Enforcement Agency registration number to make five unauthorized drug orders throughout 2020 and 2021. Shockingly, Oaklesh stands accused of diverting the drug fentanyl for personal consumption rather than administering it to her animal patients. According to the CDC, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that is up to 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. Over 150 people die every day from overdoses related to synthetic opioids like fentanyl. On October 6, 2022, 
the federal grand jury issued an indictment presenting five distinct counts against Oaklish, each corresponding to an instance of misrepresentation and purchase. Lindsay Oaklish received her license to practice veterinary medicine from Colorado in June of 2012. However, the state suspended her license on December 27, 2021. If convicted, she could face a maximum sentence of four years in prison for each count. With those cases as perspective, let's talk about the major enforcement agency behind these legal actions. The Drug Enforcement Administration was established in 1973 to serve as the primary federal agency responsible for the enforcement of the Controlled Substances Act. The act sets forth the federal law regarding both illicit and pharmaceutical controlled substances. With respect to pharmaceutical controlled substances, the DEA's statutory responsibility is twofold to prevent diversion and abuse of these drugs while ensuring an adequate and uninterrupted supply is available to meet the country's legitimate medical, scientific, and research needs. In carrying out this mission, the DEA works in close cooperation with state and local authorities and other federal agencies. Summer McKeever is a federal trial attorney with Chapman Law Group. She represents clients nationwide in the areas of federal criminal defense, healthcare fraud and abuse, governmental investigations, and DEA matters, including prosecutions related to overprescribing allegations. Every state has their individual Controlled Substance Act, as does the United States government. They have their own federal Controlled Substance Act. Primarily, physicians are going to be prosecuted by the federal government, by the United States, due to the DEA registration requirement. And also just based on likely the amount of drugs, because if you are, let's say, a practicing physician that does pain management, you're issuing a lot of prescriptions for controlled substances. And the bigger the case, the more the feds are likely to get involved, right? Can you be tried by both? The odds are slim to none, but the answer is it's possible. Under the framework of the Controlled Substances Act, the DEA is responsible for ensuring that all controlled substance transactions take place within the closed system of distribution established by Congress. Under this closed system, all legitimate handlers of controlled substances, manufacturers, distributors, physicians, pharmacies, and researchers must be registered with the DEA and maintain strict accounting for all distributions. Any practitioner or provider that is permitted to issue prescriptions for controlled substances must be registered or must be issued a certificate of registration by the DEA. You know, it's just an application. And, and if you have the qualifications and you haven't gotten in trouble, they will issue you a DEA registration. Once you obtain that number, you are permitted to issue prescriptions for controlled substances two through five but you must do so only for a legitimate medical purpose within the, within the usual course of your professional practice. And when I say issue it, I mean, you're sitting there writing the prescription, okay? You're not calling it into your nurse. You're not calling it, that's not what I mean. I mean that you have met with the patient, you have sat, you have examined them, you have determined in your medical opinion that this is the prescription that is medically necessary to treat the diagnosis or the injury or whatever that you have determined is affecting this patient based on your examination, your history, everything like that. You know, all of the information you've gathered during that examination. So once you do that, the number one thing that I think is the most important thing 
is your record keeping. When I say record keeping, I mean the record keeping of your patient encounter when you decided to write that controlled substance prescription, right? And not only then, but going down the line, if you continue that prescription, if you change that prescription, if the patient comes in and says, my prescription got stolen and it's you gave them a 30-day supply and they're back in 15 days, number one, that should be a red flag, right? Um, this should be, but what you're going to do is ask a lot of questions about that. Try to confirm that information. Is there a police report? Can I get a police report number? That kind of thing. But most importantly, take that note in your medical record on that day before you issue another one. And if that starts happening multiple times, there's always an excuse about why I need to come in early. You better start digging deeper. It's not just keep asking questions and getting answers. If they're not sounding truthful, you know, they're not believable, doctors do. And I know this is not something for vets and I'll get more to how that applies to vets in a second. But what they do is they will have a controlled substance contract with patients who are going to be needing controlled substance prescriptions, particularly when it comes to chronic pain patients, because that's going to be almost every visit, right? And it's this, this, and this. And if you don't do that, you're going to get a warning. And if you get this warning after, after two, we're going to stop prescribing or we're going to discharge you from the practice. And you must follow that, right? You need to follow that. You can't just make empty threats. You can be understanding you're a doctor, you're supposed to be. And of course, things happen. Of course they do. But something doesn't always happen to the same person every time. There's there's something else behind that. And I stick stand by the record keeping for the patient encounter because the only person you're getting the information from is a human, you know, for your, for your pet. So I, I stick by that when it comes to veterinarians too. But I also think for veterinarians, what's different than a lot of physicians, human physicians, is that they maintain controlled substances on site. They use them in the surgeries in their offices, and they use them maybe to give a small amount to the patient or the patient's you know, caretaker for a particular injury or, or what's happening at the time. That is where they need to be more diligent because it is the storage and the record keeping that's important, the security, the controls for controlled substances within a, your practice that I think is probably the most important for vets. And I can see from some of the cases that I reviewed where veterinarians have been prosecuted, one of them particularly came down to he wasn't maintaining controls and keeping inventory and making sure that other people did not have access to that. Not just the drugs, but the prescription pads. Blank prescription pads, signing a blank prescription is a no-no. That goes back to the very first thing I said, which is you must issue a prescription for a controlled substance for a legitimate medical purpose within the usual course of your professional practice. That means upon examination, diagnosis, and this is what you're issuing for treatment. So you should fill it out and you should sign it on the date that you decide to hand it to the patient because that's when you're prescribing it. The federal controlled substances laws are designed to work in tandem with state controlled substance laws. Toward the same goal, the DEA works in close cooperation with state professional licensing boards and state and local law enforcement officials to ensure that pharmaceutical controlled substances are prescribed, administered, and dispensed for legitimate medical purposes in accordance with federal and state laws. But what's important also for veterinarians, especially the ones who keep it on hand, is if they suspect or if they uncover diversion or theft from their supply, they need to report that immediately, not only to local law enforcement, but there's a DEA form that you need to fill out. 
Yes, that's why you should go to the practitioner manual and it will tell you the forms that you need. Not only just for that, for disposal, for everything. There's different things like that. But there are, yeah, there are DEA forms that need to be filled out so that a record is kept, not just your medical record, but that when it happened, when you uncovered this unlawful conduct, you reported it and you took action so that it would not be continued. And I think that's very common for vets, you know, especially staff and, um, you know, whatever may happen with one of their patients' owners. You need to call the police. You have to. Not only just the substance, but if they've stolen your prescription pad, it needs to be reported. There needs to be a record. And there also needs to be a DEA report made, which again, if you go to the practitioner data, the practitioner manual, you'll find, I, I can't off the top of my head tell you the number. I think it's like a 22 or whatever, but you need to find the actual form that you need to submit to show that this was your supply. This is what you uncovered. And this is the individual that you have confronted. But that also, by the way, goes all the way back to the initial controls, right? what you're required to do, which if you're going to keep these substances on site, you need to have certain kinds of locked safes or cabinets or whatever. You need to limit the access. You need to have maybe cameras. You shouldn't really be asking staff to access that. I know that things come up and maybe you're in surgery and, and you have a nurse or, or somebody go do that. That's fine. However, you also need to ma be maintaining an inventory. When you order things or when you need to maintain not only the inventory, but the invoice purchasing records, like keep it all to show this is what I have. This is what I bought. You would also be keeping the records of what you kind of dispense, right? So you would know why that inventory is going down. And you have to do it like every day. You really don't. There's a CFR that requires you to keep your inventory records separate and apart from any other of your records. In other words, you're thinking you you can keep it through just like your medical records, right? Oh, I remember I gave it to patient X. You need to somewhat keep that inventory apart from that. And you don't have to put the patient's name, but on X date, this many, and you need to know the form, the strength, I mean, everything. Within this cooperative framework, the majority of investigations into possible violations of the controlled substances laws are carried out by state authorities. However, the DEA also conducts investigations into possible violations of federal law. Maintain accurate and complete medical records. If you're going to change the strength of a prescription, notate why. If you're going to add another prescription, notate why and notate that you advise the risk or, or all the things that you need to do. You, those are all listed in the practitioner manual, the kind of things that you should be you should be doing. In the event a state board revokes the license of a practitioner, the DEA will take action and request a voluntary surrender of the practitioner's DEA registration. If the practitioner refuses to voluntarily surrender the registration, the DEA will pursue administrative action to revoke the DEA registration. The DEA may also pursue judicial action if there is sufficient evidence of illegal distribution or significant record-keeping violations. According to the DEA, all such actions are intended to deny the practitioner the means to continue to divert or abuse controlled substances as well as to protect the health and safety of the public and the practitioner. The DEA is authorized under federal law to pursue legal action in order to prevent the diversion of controlled substances and protect the public safety. A lack of compliance may result in a need for corrective action, such as administrative action, that is, a letter of admonition, an informal hearing or order to show cause, or in extreme cases, civil or criminal action. If you're under investigation, don't start altering your records, okay? Because now you're tampering with evidence, all right? So if you know you're under investigation, let's don't start doing it like that. If you're someone who is just a procrastinator and lazy, 
then spend the time and or the money and do your records when you're supposed to, because it's going to cost you a lot more money when you need me. And it's going to cost you a lot more time, if you know what I mean. Don't be lazy, because you're talking about not only your livelihood, you're talking about your liberty here. You've been entrusted with an ability to do something that nobody else has. And with that, I hate to be like, you know, Spider-Man's uncle, but I mean, like, with, you know, great power comes great responsibility, right? And you are amongst the, you know, the few, this elite group that can issue prescriptions for controlled substance or distribute these controlled substances legitimately, legally, and not get in trouble. Whereas the rest of the world will be arrested. They are, they are drug dealers, right? So all that is required of you is to follow some simple rules, which you should be doing anyway, because it's in the best interest of your patient. Like something happens down the line, another doctor needs to know what's going on with the patient. They may need your records, right? To establish something. They want to know what treatments have already been have already been tried and failed or successful. So it's not just about you or, or your need to get out to dinner. And if you want to do it later in the evening, fine. If you want to do it on Sunday for your patient, you know, the weekend for some of the patients you saw that week, I'm okay with that. I don't think it's the best idea because your memory will fade. You can become confused. And the whole idea here is that the records are accurate, not just for the patient, but for yourself to defend if necessary. And now let me address the people who have already been screwing up, right? Then get right now. I mean, there's nothing you can do. You messed up. If you've not been doing things or you weren't aware that you were doing things incorrectly, then pick today and start, start getting that stuff in line. And everybody knows life gets busy and everybody knows that, you know, nobody wants to do paperwork. Fine. Get an EMR, get a scribe. I don't care. I really don't care. But ultimately I'm telling you a little money spent now and a little time spent now is going to save you down the line. It's few and far between the people who are calling me. I can get them on the path to no problem, right? If you're calling me, that ship's already sailed. Now we have to defend it. And if you haven't done those things back when you were supposed to, you're going to say, I know I gave it to him for this purpose. I know it was for this reason. Oh, show me this. Oh, I believe, it. you know, you're going to tell me that. And I'll probably believe you. You'll probably be telling the truth, but I'm going to tell you that it's not going to help me win your case. If you don't have the records, I don't care how much I believe you. I don't care how much is the truth. It's going to be about the evidence. And the only way for us to know you're telling the truth or for a jury of your peers to know you're telling the truth is because you can be like, look right here, I have the receipts. Just do it. And if you need to, if you're if you're lazy and you don't want to write or you have terrible handwriting, that's another thing. If you have terrible handwriting, get a dictation thing, right? Get a little recorder, blah, 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 blah. And then send it to someone who transcribes medical records. Surgeons and physicians and hospitals do that all the time, all the time. They just dictate and then it gets transcribed or put in the medical record, right? Spend the money up front because I say this in all serious, not to be funny. It will cost you a lot more money when you need someone like us. These cases are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend. They are very dense in information and they require experts. And, you know, when it comes to like looking at 200, 300, 400 patient records, that takes a lot of time. And these trials are not short either. They're not, these are not the week long trials of yesteryear back in the day when I just did, you know, normal general crimes. <laughs> these are the ones where I'm going for a month, 
two months, six weeks, not a jury, not a judge. Nobody wants to be sitting in trial for six weeks. Your DEA registration has been suspended. Most likely your medical license has been suspended or at least something's happening with it at, the, at that time. So these, and these can take years to even prepare and get to trial. What are you going to do for income then? When I say I cost a lot of money, I mean it disrupts your entire life, income, way of living, and things of that nature. I'm not telling them to go back and fix their records. It's too late. You're not going to remember clearly anyway, and certainly do not falsify a medical record. I would just say today's the day I change, or today's the day I get what I need so that I don't continue to do this lackadaisical record keeping. Melissa Paradise, a 43-year-old resident of West Barnstable, Massachusetts, was sentenced for the theft of hydroconone from her workplace, a veterinary office. In a federal court session in Boston, Paradise pled guilty. She received time served, approximately one day in prison, and one year of supervised release. Then, in late 2018-2019, federal investigators detected an unusually large volume of hydrocodone orders originating from the veterinary office where Paradise was employed. During an audit conducted at the Animal Hospital's office in June 2019, investigators discovered that Paradise was responsible for maintaining prescription records for the office. To her credit, Paradise admitted to the scheme on the day that the investigators showed up to the clinic for the audit. According to the indictment, she ordered more than 100 bottles of doggy cough medicine, a hydrocodone, homoptropine mix, worth more than 10,000 tablets. Paradise was found to have impersonated the clinic's veterinarian, complete with using the vet's DEA registration number, to order large amounts of hydrocodone for personal use. She was also found guilty of forging another veterinarian's signature. Paradise pled guilty to six counts of obtaining a controlled substance using a registration number assigned to another individual as well as eight counts of acquiring a controlled substance through misrepresentation, fraud, forgery, deception, and subterfuge. Lastly, we have the state of Ohio versus Michael E. Smith. Dr. Michael E. Smith was arrested in February 2022 following an extensive investigation conducted jointly by Ohio state, city, and county authorities. Reports of potentially illicit drug activity and red flags raised by the Ohio Board of Pharmacy led to an execution of a search warrant at Smith's residence. The Board of Pharmacy flagged an unusually high number of hydromorphine prescriptions issued by Dr. Smith. During this operation, law enforcement seized firearms, drugs, and records, as reported by the county sheriff's office. Smith faced a total of 37 charges related to the investigation, but the majority of these charges were dropped in exchange for his guilty plea. He ultimately pled guilty to 10 counts of illegal processing of drug documents, classified as fourth-degree felonies, as well as one third-degree felony charge related to weapons possession. He was sentenced to 17 months for each illegal processing charge and 24 months in prison for the weapons charge, with these sentences running concurrently, or together rather than separately. Smith received credit for 159 days already served in jail. At the sentencing hearing, Dr. Smith openly admitted to illicitly writing prescriptions as a mean to finance his own drug dependency, expressing remorse. The remaining charges, which included 15 counts of trafficking in drugs, specifically Dilaudid, and several other drug-related counts were dismissed. Dr. Smith surrendered his license to practice veterinary medicine in November of 2015 as part of a deal to avoid formal discipline. However, his license to practice was restored in November of 2020 by the Ohio Veterinary Licensing Board. Dr. Smith also surrendered his DEA registration as part of the plea deal in 2015. 
In February of 2020, Dr. Smith filed an application for DEA registration once more. Following a hearing, the DEA declined his application. It's not a defense. To convict you of a lot of these things, what they have to prove is that you knowingly and intentionally did it, right? And knowingly and intentionally issued a prescription for a controlled substance outside the usual, you know, for no legitimate medical purpose outside the usual course of professional practice. Or I knowingly and intentionally caused a false or fraudulent statement to be submitted to a government benefit healthcare program for reimbursement for a okay. okay, but they're like, I didn't know it. My biller did it. I didn't intentionally do it. Guess what? There's a jury instruction that says, you signed that certification saying you were going to know all the rules and regulations. We put it on the website. It's it's free access information. And what you actually did was you didn't seek it out. So now what the government is going to ask the judge and they're going to get it, no matter the fights we put up right now. And we'll get to a Supreme Court case eventually where we can hopefully get this thing tossed. But right now there's a jury instruction that's called, it's called different things in different you know jurisdictions, but it's either deliberate ignorance or willful blindness or willful ignorance and deliberate blindness, you know, whatever. The point is, is that you cannot stick your head in the sand and not seek out material information or facts in order to determine whether or not you are doing it right or wrong. That onus is on you because you've been issued the DEA registration and because you have been permitted to enroll and bill Medicare, a government benefit healthcare program. I want you to know that doesn't, it's not just for doctors and stuff. It, it, it applies in so many different areas of law, you know? So it's, it's not just for that, but I'm just saying what it does is it circumvents the statute. Statute says knowing and intentionally, right? That's what it says. But somehow in case law, and now it's become a jury instruction, the government has said, we don't even have to prove that they know they intentionally did it. We can just try to throw out some information and say they should have known. They didn't seek it out. They didn't call summer or compliance. When you come to me, it's personal. It's individual. Your clinic's not being prosecuted. You're being prosecuted as an individual. Your insurance is not going to pay for it. And you're not going to write it off on your taxes. I mean, you might, because it's not a business expense. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm not a tax person, but I'll tell you what. Doctors who want to come to me and be like, oh, can we um, see if my malpractice insurance will cover it? I'm like, no. You, I mean, yeah, you can. Yes, of course you can. Go ahead and call them. You have to pay my bill and then you can submit it to them and see if they'll reimburse you for it. But I don't collect from insurance companies because the odds are they're going to say no because they're insuring your practice and they're insuring what you do in your practice. They're not insuring you from not committing a crime. The opioid abuse epidemic knows no bounds extending its reach not only to physicians and pharmacists, but also to the veterinary profession. Veterinarians find themselves at a unique crossroads, where the necessity of pain medication in animal care introduces a potential vulnerability to abuse by individuals seeking these drugs for personal misuse. So how can you safeguard yourself, your staff, and your clients in this challenging environment? Adhere to state regulations on opioid prescriptions. Each state sets forth its own regulations governing the practice of veterinary medicine, including the secure storage of controlled substances such as opioids. Familiarize yourself with your state's specific requirements and stay updated as regulations evolve to curb opioid access. Comply with federal regulations. While the FDA approves controlled drugs, it is the DEA that establishes and enforces regulations regarding controlled substances. Reach out to your local DEA office for guidance on federal regulations. In cases of theft or controlled substances from your clinic, 
immediate reporting to the DEA and local law enforcement is essential. Consider non-opioid alternatives. Explore non-opioid pain management protocols, as they may effectively address pain in animals. Resources like the International Association of Veterinary Pain Management and the American Animal Hospital Association's guidelines offer valuable information on pain management without the use of opioids. Educate pet owners on safe storage and disposal. Inform pet owners about the risks associated with having opioid medications at home. Encourage them to securely store opioids out of reach and sight. Follow advice on proper disposal methods following FDA recommendations for opioid disposal. Develop a safety plan and recognize signs of opioid abuse. Be prepared for situations involving opioid diversion or clients seeking opioids under false pretenses. Consult with local law enforcement for guidance. The American Veterinary Medical Association provides resources for veterinarians to identify and address opioid abuse warning signs among clients and staff. Before we wrap up, I wanted to highlight the current status of the massive opioid litigation and the level of corporate responsibility. There is no question that manufacturers and pharmacies are primarily responsible for this crisis. The recent settlements, while the companies claim no wrongdoing, are a testament to their culpability. In July of 2019, the Washington Post and the Charleston Gazette Mail obtained a court order after a year-long battle with the Drug Enforcement Administration. This order granted the Washington Post access to the DEA's Automation of Reports and Consolidated Order System, a comprehensive system that tracks the production, distribution, and retail sale of every pain pill across the United States. Upon analyzing the data, the Washington Post's findings were striking. Between 2006 and 2012, a total of 76 billion oxycodone and hydrocodone pain pills had been distributed throughout the country. During this time frame, just six companies dominated the distribution landscape, accounting for a significant 75% of all pill distribution. McKesson Corp, Walgreens, Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen, CVS, and Walmart, as confirmed by the Washington Post database analysis. Moreover, in the manufacturing sector, only three companies were responsible for a substantial 88% of opioid production. Spec GX, a subsidiary of Mollenkrot, Activist Pharma, and Par Pharmaceutical, a subsidiary of Endo Pharmaceuticals. Interestingly, Purdue Pharma, which the plaintiffs assert played a role in sparking the epidemic in the 1990s with the introduction of Oxycontin, its version of Oxycodone, was ranked fourth among manufacturers, holding approximately 3% of the market share. To give you an idea of where this epidemic is headed, I'll leave you with this. In 2021, comprehensive national settlements were successfully brokered to resolve all opioid-related litigation filed by states and local government entities. These lawsuits targeted the three major pharmaceutical distributors, McKesson, Cardinal Health, and Amerisource Bergen, as well as the pharmaceutical manufacturer, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and its parent company, Johnson & Johnson. These national settlements have been officially concluded and payments have already commenced. In total, the distributors have agreed to pay upwards of $21 billion over the course of 18 years, while Johnson & Johnson will continue up to an additional $5 billion over a maximum of nine years. In 2022, agreements were announced involving pharmacies CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart, 
as well as two additional pharmaceutical manufacturers, Allergen and Teva. By January 2023, each of these pharmacy chains and manufacturers confirmed that a sufficient number of states had agreed to the settlements, signifying the finalization of the 2022 national settlements. Similar to the 2021 national settlements, the extent of participation by states and subdivisions will directly influence the amount allocated for abatement efforts. Although it is not yet final, assuming the maximum participation, the 2022 national settlements contain the following commitments. Teva will make payments of up to $3.34 billion over 13 years and additionally provide either $1.2 billion worth of its generic version of the drug Narcan over 10 years or $240 million in cash, depending on each state's choice. Allergen will disperse up to $2 billion over seven years. CVS will pay a total of up to $4.9 billion over 10 years. Walgreens will contribute up to $5.52 billion over 15 years. Walmart will pay up to $2.7 billion in 2023, with all payments scheduled to be completed within six years. Both the 2021 and 2022 national settlements stipulate that at least 85% of the funds allocated to participating states and subdivisions must be directed towards abating the opioid epidemic. These settlements also introduce much-needed reforms in the business practices of the settling defendants. For example, the distributors are mandated to establish a new clearinghouse, which will not only track their own opioid shipments, but also monitor shipments by other distributors. This is designed to detect, halt, and report suspicious opioid orders. Johnson & Johnson, which ceased marketing opioids in 2015 and halted opioid sales in 2020, is barred from marketing or selling any opioid products for the next decade. They have also agreed to refrain from lobbying on prescription opioids for 10 years. Teva and Allergen have agreed to stringent restrictions on their marketing, promotion, sale, and distribution of opioids, including prohibitions on promotional activities and lobbying, incentivizing employees based on opioid sales volume, and providing funding or grants to third parties. Walmart, CVS, and Walgreens are obligated to implement changes in their handling of opioids, encompassing compliance structures, pharmacist judgment, diversion prevention, monitoring of suspicious orders, and reporting processes related to potential issues and problematic prescribers. All in all, the settlements have reached more than $50 billion. For comparison, the U.S. Congress Joint Economic Committee estimates the opioid epidemic cost to the United States to be nearly $1.5 trillion in the year of 2020 alone. At least 2,500 opioid lawsuits are still pending in the U.S. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. fellow veterinary professionals, I'm Dr. Shannon Gregoire, and I want to share my experience with the Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector, the innovative IV device that's been a total game changer. Now, let me tell you, using this device has been a breath of fresh air in our daily workflow. No more worrying about dislodged IV lines or struggling with line breakages during critical treatments. Covetris Break-Free Breakaway IV Connector's anti-reconnect feature is a lifesaver. It ensures that once the line separates, there's no chance of contamination. Plus, the recessed valves prevent bacterial contamination for up to two hours after separation. 
It's like they thought of everything. Another standout feature is how it connects with standard ISO lure connectors, making it compatible with our existing equipment. It's super convenient and easy to use. And let's talk about the numbers. Break Free has been shown to significantly reduce IV restarts by 65%. That's a huge time saver and reduces stress for both our team and our patients. It's not just about efficiency, it's about providing top-notch care for our patients. So, if you're looking for an IV accessory that enhances your clinic's performance and ensures your patients get the best care, I highly recommend giving Covetris Break Free Breakaway IV Connector a try exclusively at Covetris. Unmasking the Opioid Crisis, a Veterinarian's Vital Role Unveiled, was written by Dr. Jill Lopez and Omar Lopez and is a Vet Candy production. Special thanks to the University of Buffalo, the Association of Shelter Veterinarians, Veterinary Telespeciality by VOCN, and the Chapman Law Group. Please check the show comments below for information about how to get continuing education credit plus recommended reading. If you enjoyed the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Even better, leave a rating or a comment. It really helps others find the show. For Vet Candy, I am Clay Palmer. We will be back next week, and thank you for listening. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.